Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the Executive Director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nouwen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry to audiences around the world. Each week, we endeavor to bring you a new interview with someone who's been deeply influenced by the writings of Henry Nouwen. Someone whose own writing is an important and valued resource to spiritual seekers. We invite you to share the daily meditations and these podcasts with your friends and family. Through them, we can continue to introduce new audiences to the writings and teachings of Henry Nouwen and remind each listener that they're a beloved child of God. Now, let me take a moment to introduce today's guest. Today on this podcast, I have the pleasure of talking with Father Daniel Horan. Father Horan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and a professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College at Notre Dame. He's the author of 14 books and a columnist for the National Catholic Reporter. He has a podcast called The Francis Effect. This is a podcast about culture and politics from a Catholic perspective. Father Daniel, there are so many things I want to talk to you about today, but before we launch into a discussion about our relationship and responsibility to creation and the environment, I'm curious if the writings and teachings of Henry Nouwen have been an influence on your spiritual journey. Well, let me say, Karen, right from the from the outset, what a joy it is to be with you. It's uh, it, it's I'm honored to be on the podcast, and I'm looking forward to our conversation too. Um, the short answer is absolutely. Uh, like so many uh, folks, especially those like myself in religious life, um, you know, the writings of, of Henry Nouwen have been deeply, deeply influential. In fact, I was just thinking about it earlier today. I'm like, when did I first read one of Nouwen's books? And I, I had a hard time thinking about exactly when that was because I seem to remember being a novice in the Franciscan order, of which I'm a part, um, and just devouring book after book after book of his. I think the gateway drug, if I can use that maybe inappropriate uh, <laughs> metaphor, is uh, is one that I think a lot of uh, a lot of folks who who are introduced to now in uh, these days is introduced by, and that is his his famous "The Return of the Prodigal Son" book. Um, that I remember very very distinctly. Being in the chapel in the novitiate very early in the morning, um, you know, I'm not that I, I'm not that young, but I'm a lot younger than most <laughs> women and men religious these days. And so, but I do have to say that we in the novitiate had a schedule that was was pretty rigorous um, for its time, and and we would be up before dawn, um, especially in in Lent and Advent, in the chapel at meditation, and, and we could bring you know a book to read. I just remember sitting in that chapel. I can see it to this day. And, and reading the sections of The Return of the Prodigal Son, and for the first time, like I imagine so many readers of Nowens, really relating, resonating so much with identifying with each of the three major figures in that parable in a way that I don't think I had really understood or experienced before. But that was, as I say, sort of the entry point for me, as I, I'm sure it is for so many other readers of Nowen. I, I, I mean, I've read everything from, uh, you know, Clowning in Rome, which as a young religious uh, was, was something that I think really spoke to me as I was discerning religious life and coming to understand, you know, what does it mean to talk about vocation in the world today? Um, all the way up to, you know, so now kind of later, more recently in, in my life, I've had the responsibility and honor and, and, and privilege of, of serving on a number of uh, academic boards of trustees. And one small text that many of our listeners will be familiar with is 
is now one's reflection on the kind of ministry of philanthropy. And I, I've been very moved by that and, and find it challenging and insightful. Um, but I have to tell you, the most recent one is one that I just picked up a couple, maybe a couple months ago and have just sort of gone back in, which is the last, if I if I'm got the chronology correct, and, and you're the expert, so I, I'll defer to you, but is um, his little book, Can You Drink the Cup? Which I think might have been, was that the last, was it a posthumous book or maybe the last before he passed away? It is, it is actually literally one of the last books. It's interesting. He did it with Orbis and, and you're right. It's a, it's a beautiful little book, but it was one that came out, I don't know if it came out actually after his death. I think it was completed, but uh, it's a very important book. Yeah, that's good. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, you've obviously been, you've obviously read a lot of now and, and I have been pretty excited about talking with you today. You've been writing articles and books and so many important things, and I thought it was so timely that we would be talking today of all days. It may not be the, it won't be the actual day that the podcast goes out, but we are in the midst of COP26. This is the global gathering of leaders and activists taking place in Scotland, addressing the issues of climate change in the world today. It's evident to me in your writing, uh, Dan, that uh, you're passionate and well-informed on the issues and the human responsibilities for our global ecology. I'd like to start there. Sure. You know yeah. something? There are still some people that honestly don't accept the truth about climate change, and there's some people of faith that don't, and I, 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 I'm surprised by that. Are you? And, and how do you speak into this today? Oh, Karen, that's such a great question. Um I, I wish I could say I was surprised. I think at this point I've, I've become rather disillusioned with my, my sisters and brothers and realized that we're all complex people. And, you know, especially in the, the sort of environment that we live in today, I, I mean, I think of when Nowen died in the mid 90s, uh, who could have imagined, you know, the internet as it is today and, and social media and all this sort of stuff where people no longer really have a sense of what, what is true, or at least they might convince themselves that they're armchair experts in, in things like, you know, meteorology and climate and, and science and so forth. But all that is to say that uh, I, I agree with, with the kind of surprise that you described with people of faith. Um, and, and frankly, and to use faith language, one of the ways I've come to understand that sort of resistance or, or hesitancy or denialism is, is a form of, of original sin, or maybe what Patriarch Bartholomew and Pope Francis have called ecological sin. And what I'm thinking of in particular is in, the, in Genesis 3, we have that great scene, of course, with, with the characters Adam and Eve and the snake and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And one of the things that I think we are quick to kind of zip by in that, in that story is what the actual original temptation was. Now, people talk about disobedience and Augustine talks about pride. But, you know, one of the things that really strikes me is the temptation is to try to be something other than what God created us to be, you know, that we're more than, mm -hmm. you know, what, what does the serpent say? You can be like God. You're not good enough as you are. And I, and I bring that up because I think there's a lack of appropriate humility and awe and wonder when we think about ourselves as human beings in God's larger family of creation. And so there's this temptation for us to think it's all about us, that we're immune from and isolated from the rest of creation, that we're kind of independent and uh, self-sufficient, which is a total lie. You know, we, we depend on other creatures, plants and animals to 
sustain us and to give us shelter and clothing and food and, and fresh air. You know, thank God for plant life for that reason on this planet. So I, I bring that up only because I wonder sometimes if the, the spiritual crisis is really profound, much more profound than we realize when folks uh, are inclined to, to sort of dismiss the reality of climate change and, and humanity's role in that, because a lot of people may not want to grapple with the fact that they are creatures, they are finite, we are interdependent too. It's interesting how we we tend to, there can be a tendency to separate and feel superior to and in control of, but there's there is a failure in that to understand the interconnectedness. And I found that as I was reading things which you've written, you really identified as a spiritual crisis. Uh, you know, I don't think a lot of people think of the global climate change as a spiritual crisis. They think of it as a as a physical crisis. But it, it maybe unwrap that a little for us. Why is it a spiritual crisis? Yeah, well, so on the one hand, um, it's a spiritual crisis because you know, I, I mean, as people of faith, let me begin there. For those who, who embrace Christianity or, or truly, as, as the Catholic Church often describes it, you know, women and men of goodwill of any tradition, is that we recognize on the one hand that as human beings, we are more than the sum of our parts, right? We are not just limited to our physical composition or, or you know, kind of biological makeup, but, but there's something deeper there, this, this constant openness to the transcendent that, that God reaches near us and in the Christian community, we call that the Holy Spirit, right, who indwells among us. And so that's one thing. The other thing about that is if we believe in the Holy Spirit, we're united to one another. Again, a tenet of, of Christianity, right, that through baptism we're, we're united in the Holy Spirit. What I would say, and this might make me sound like a stereotypical Franciscan friar, you know, kind of Francis in the birdbath image here, but <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> that interconnectedness, that that unity with the Holy Spirit or through the Holy Spirit by means of the Holy Spirit is not simply um, among humans. But as we see, for instance, in the book of Genesis, you know, the, the chapter one, verse two, where, where God's spirit, the Ruach Elohim in Hebrew, draws near to creation in his part, is imminently present to creation. Or we look at um, the great soliloquies of, of God's discourse in the book of Job toward the end, where God talks about the divine closeness to all creatures, including those that human beings have no idea about. Um, but I'm also thinking, too, in terms of a spiritual crisis, what is the significance of the heart of our faith as, as Christians in particular? And that's the incarnation, right? Without the word becoming flesh, without the you know Jesus Christ, there's no Christianity. And what is it that we say we believe when we profess faith in the, in, in the incarnation? And we're saying, as the Gospel of John outlines in the prologue, that God, the divine, the word, the transcendent, takes on sarks in Greek, flesh, earthiness, materiality. And so that the incarnation, the whole centerpiece of our life of faith, is actually something that does not pertain only to human beings, but to all of God's creation, all flesh, all sarks, all materiality. There's a lot more I can say about that because it's, you know, I get really worked up in, in an energized way about it because I think it's so important. But I love your question about how is this a spiritual crisis? Well, if we take seriously what we say we believe in the creed and in our faith, let's say the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, God creator, the incarnate word, well, that has real implications for our, uh, our community as, as, a, as a planet, as an ecosystem, uh, as, as a cosmic family. You know, it's, it's so interesting as I listen to you um, and I hear that and, and in a sense right now, 
right at this moment as we as we kind of watch uh, all the people gathered there in in Glasgow uh, you know eager to make change but also that sense of will we really be able to what do you think is the role of people of faith where do you see us in this where I mean you might even want to open up to us Pope Francis's Laudate Si and just share a little bit about what is our what is our responsibility yeah, our responsibility, first and foremost, I mean, and this, I think, comes right out of the Christian penitential tradition, right? We we acknowledge, for instance, in our, our Eucharistic liturgies, before we even hear the Word of God, we acknowledge that we've done something wrong, right? That none of us are sort of worthy to be there, that we need to do a kind of check-in or self-evaluation and examination of conscience. And I think that's a place to begin. So what are our responsibilities with climate change? You know, in Laudato Si, Pope Francis, very early on in the encyclical, says, without any ifs, ands, or buts, that humanity is responsible for a lot of this devastation and the trajectory that the global climate uh, system is on right now. And so I would say the first step for us is, is to acknowledge what we've done and what we have failed to do. Um, as people of faith, it's not just, you know, quote-unquote secular people or non-believers who are responsible for this. Quite frankly, we have, and as, as Pope Francis has pointed out, and before him, many, many scripture scholars, it's been decades, if not centuries, of people of faith who have misinterpreted or misapplied, misused sacred scripture and our religious tradition to justify a lot of these great harms. I think about, you know, the the misunderstanding of Genesis 1, 26 to 28, where people have assumed that what God is talking about here in this in this creation narrative is that we can dominate, subdue, take, uh, you know, without any kind of uh, consideration for anything other than our own interests from the rest of creation. And we've seen what that devastating, what the devastating consequences of that way of thinking and acting are. So the first thing I would say is our responsibility is to acknowledge that. I think the second thing, and this is something Pope Francis emphasizes too, is uh, embracing a spirit of ongoing conversion, ecological conversion. And I think part of what that entails is what we were just speaking about a moment ago which is that we need to remember that we are creation too, and that we are interdependent and interrelated. We are um, connected to one another in creation, and we don't go it alone, right? So what we do has an impact, and that's what Pope Francis means when he talks about the relationship between the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. And then I would say the third thing as people of faith is, you know, we're all called, I believe, by virtue of our baptism, to be prophets. And what I mean by that is that we are to announce the good news, we are to announce the inbreaking of the reign of God, and to remind ourselves and others of what that entails, returning to right relationship, including right relationship with creation. So I think Laudato Si does that well, too. At the end, Pope Francis talks about not only a spirit of ecological conversion, but the importance of education and the importance of action. So that's, in a nutshell, I would say what I think the starting point is for people of faith. I I think another thing which I found in some of the articles that you had written that touched me very much was the reality of our responsibility to our brother. And some of the poorest people in the world have been most impacted by the reality of climate change. And for us to be indifferent to that is not what we really called to as followers of Christ. We we are called to care. We are called, it, it's a failure to love if we don't care for the person who is, uh, you know, experiencing the the tortures of, of climate change that, that can overwhelm them. We're beginning to experience it much more in what we 
you know, traditionally called the first world. But in in essence, uh, those who are in uh, much more devastating circumstances, it's getting much harder, whether it's getting drier or whether it's getting wetter or, you know, the islands that are literally going to disappear if the ice is, keeps melting, all these kinds of things. We have a responsibility as followers of Christ to love our brother. And, and I think that enters into it, don't you? I totally agree. I absolutely agree. And and I think you, you raised such an important point about you know, the disproportionate impact and, and the kind of time frame and when that affects different populations. And you're right to say that in the kind of so-called first world or, or more developed or wealthier parts of the world, like the United States or Canada or much of Europe, you know, we tend to be somewhat isolated, insulated rather from the, the worst effects. And, you know, again, I can't help but quote Pope Francis and Laudato Si, where he's one of the first in maybe the last decade to really highlight the language of of climate refugees or environmental refugees. And sadly, we're seeing this more and more exactly as you say, that people are, you know, places are, are being drowned, uh, fires, the wildfires in different parts of the world have become increasingly more destructive. Um, other natural occurrences like hurricanes and tornadoes and, and those sorts of things are, are increasing in, in their violence and their impact as well. And um, we can't turn a blind eye. So, yeah, it is. It's not just a matter of can we put ourselves first or our loved ones first or our nation first, wherever we may find ourselves. It's can we listen to the cries of our sisters and brothers in other parts of the world? And I'm thinking in particular of a lot of the Pacific Islanders, um, you know, who are really facing basically the, the total destruction of their homelands as we speak, as you said. I mean, it's just... It's of a magnitude that's very hard to wrap one's head around. Yeah. You you wrote a book, All God's Creatures, A Theology of Creation. And I'm curious in that if your if your model for us, if if one of the thoughts is that we are to be in quote stewards of the earth. I, I I've heard that phrase before. Or is there something else that is that you're thinking of when when you think about how we relate to the earth and, and relate to creation. Well, I love that you ask that because, um, in fact, I, I have a lot to say about the, the notion of stewardship. Um, and, and one of the things I, I like to say, and I talk about that in, in the book, All God's Creatures, is that uh, the stewardship approach to understanding humanity's place within the community of creation is by all means an improvement on the so-called dominion model, this idea yeah. that sort of God created the world and we could do as we please. Stewardship is, is better, but I actually believe drawing from not only sacred scripture, but also, <laughs> surprise, surprise to our listeners, <laughs> to the Franciscan tradition, Francis of Assisi and his beautiful canticle of the creatures, um, the theologians who follow in the Franciscan tradition in the, in the Middle Ages up through our present time, um, people who, of, of sort of like-minded approach will say, well, wait a minute, the problem with stewardship, as good as it is, is that it still creates a barrier between us and the rest of creation, us meaning human beings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I mean by that is, yeah, that a steward is a hired hand, you know, somebody who could be good or bad. And Jesus uses that image a lot, obviously, in the Gospels. But what, what I would argue for and, and believe Francis of Assisi, and to some extent as well, Pope Francis has signaled this, is to remember, as I mentioned earlier, that we are creation too. And as such, we are truly brothers and sisters to all of creation. Therefore, 
can we think of ourselves as part of a kind of cosmic family of creation or God's, you know, part of God's kin? Um, as I like to say to my students sometimes, uh, put very, very simply, it's, it's, you know, there are two categories in existence. There's God and there's not God. Oh. <laughs> and what side are we on? <laughs> We're on the not God side with everything else. We come from the same source. And so, you know, we come from the same, you know, origin. And let's yeah. recognize that, that that binds us together in a particular way. That's beautiful. Now, there was something else. Before we go on, I want to ask you about a phrase that uh, the Pope called intergenerational solidarity. What does that mean to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a it's such a great phrase. And, and that's one that actually goes back to John Paul II, something he had used in passing. And, and Pope Francis really lifts that up. What he means by that, in short, is that um, we have a responsibility, as you mentioned earlier, not just to ourselves, not just to our immediate kin or, or friends and neighbors, but to those generations not even yet born, those women and men and children of generation after generation after generation, long after we have you know, left this earth, there will be others who will inherit our common home, who will enter into this relationship of, of creation. And so when we make decisions, when we decide, is this the right approach? Is this the right path? Is this ethically sound? Do we only take ourselves or our immediate folk into consideration, or do we think about generations down the road? And if I may, just two, two notes on that. One is there's a real resonance between that spirituality, that way of thinking and discernment, and so many First Nations and Aboriginal peoples around the world. You know, famously, yes. a lot of North American, um, Native North Americans will talk about seven or more generations. Can we, you know, think in, in terms of our action and decision making that many generations down the road? You know, great, great, great grandchildren, you know, that our generation will never meet. Then the other thing I think of, too, in the Christian tradition is, is the communion of saints, which is we are united to one another in the Holy Spirit through baptism, not only to all those who are currently alive with us, our contemporaries, but all women and men who've come before us and all those who will come after us. And in God's eternal time, we are bonded together in love. So when we act, do we think about our sisters and brothers that we'll maybe never meet in person, but how does our actions, our decisions, our inactions today, how will that affect those down the road? That's in a nutshell what I think the Holy Father is getting at with intergenerational solidarity. It's interesting because you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of something that became very real to Henry now. And uh, in the last few years of his life, he wrote so much about fruitfulness. He really called mm-hmm. us to be fruitful. He talked about fecundity, which was a brand new word to me. I'd never heard that one before. But fecundity, being fruitful, having lives that bear fruit. And I think the fruitfulness of of caring about the generations that follow that we are responsible and we owe it to them. And uh, I, I so appreciate that you you mentioned our indigenous uh, communities around the world that have real leadership in this, who have always honored and loved and uh, respected the earth in ways that we needed to learn from them as opposed to anything else. I, You're absolutely right. I I'm blessed by that. Um, just before we move on, I, I, I think we've gathered throughout the various things you've talked about, but I've been really touched by. You're a Franciscan through and through. Tell us a little bit about the Franciscan tradition. I mean, I, I think about St. Francis of Assisi, but just, you know, are, are for you, all creatures are your brothers and sisters? Uh, 
Is that indeed how you see it? Just just give me a little insight into the Franciscan tradition. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, as you can tell already, I'm, I'm kind of a talker, <laughs> so I'll try to be brief because I could go on for <laughs> Couple couple days on. on. Oh, I know that's a big question, isn't it? it? Is. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I'll say this. You know, a couple things. You know that that might just be kind of highlights of of what's so significant about the Franciscan tradition for me personally. Um, what drew me to the order, but also I think the wisdom. You know that take. You know, Pope Francis, the name, for example. Here is the first Jesuit pope in all of the church history. And the name he takes is that of Francis of Assisi, which no one has dared to touch for 800 years. And I can't help but think that this is somebody who is very attuned to the way God is calling us to live in the world today and is responding to the signs of the times. And he sees in St. Francis of Assisi a model yeah. for that. So what is that model? Well, first is this sense of, of kinship, this interrelatedness among all creation. When St. Francis wrote the Canticle of the Creatures and he called the sun and the moon and the earth his brother and his sister and our mother, a lot of people will reduce that to kind of a caricature and they say, oh, well, isn't, that, isn't that cute? It's like a beautiful little children's book or something. And let's make a statue and put him in the garden. And that's, a, that's the end of that. But what, what those of us who are Franciscan scholars and theologians will point out is that he was not kidding around. He understood that in a deeply mystical deeply profound and truthful way so that when he says these elements of creation are connected to us in some way, he's speaking a profound truth that's echoed coincidentally in scripture. And then fast forward several hundred years, the natural sciences catch up and tell us, oh, as a matter of fact, these things called uh, the elements, the periodical table of elements, the, the matter that exists in the world, we are actually all made up of the same thing. We are interrelated in that sense. So so that's one thing, that interrelationship, care for creation, not just as something to be used, but something that is that we're, we're connected to in a distinctive way. Again, not unlike uh, the indigenous communities around the globe who, who have understood this for millennia. Another thing is, is evangelical poverty. And for Francis of Assisi, it wasn't about who could be the most materially poor. Famously, Francis of Assisi, toward the end of his life, accepted as a gift a whole mountain from a, a very wealthy count in, in uh, kind of the middle part of what is today Italy. And so it wasn't about things so much, but as one's relationship to property, both physical things and kind of what he would call spiritual things like judgments, prejudices, the need to be right, the kind of dismissals we might make or insults we hold and grudges against one another. Basically, all of this is to say anything, physical or non-physical, that gets in the way of relationship. And he points, of course, to Jesus, who, who famously said, you know, birds have nests and foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And that's because then nothing gets in the way of his ability to be present to whomever God places before us. So I think, you know, relationship is at the heart. I think evangelical poverty is the greatest means to that. Can we relate to things in this world differently? Um you know, there's there's a lot more to say. Obviously, St. Francis was also a, an icon of interreligious dialogue and peacemaking. So these are kind of three things that I think really speak to us today. You know, our relationship to creation, our relationship to things, and relationship to one another, and the, the need for gospel poverty, but also this idea of dialogue, reconciliation, and peacemaking. You know, it takes a lot to be <laughs> Francis of Assisi in, in 1219 in the middle of the Fifth Crusade to go disobey the Pope and disobey the local Cardinal and the Crusaders to cross over into quote unquote enemy territory. 
have a peaceful conversation over the course of several days with the leader of the Muslim world at the time, and then to come back unscathed because they mutually respected one another, cared for each other, uh, didn't see each other as threats or, or, or objects of violence, but you know, a true fraternity was formed. So, boy, wouldn't that be great to have more of that? On absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to make a complete kind of left turn, but I'm going to make it because, Daniel, you've written a new book. It's called A White Catholic's Guide to Racism and Privilege. You really have your finger on the pulse of the day. I want to hear something about this book. Uh, it, it just uh, caught my eye immediately. I thought, thank goodness you've written it. Tell us about it. Well, thank you for saying that. I, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, it's a book that's very important to me as well. Um, I, I'm so glad you talked both about the book on creation and then this one, because these are two things, as, as you said, maybe it's, it's a sense of the pulse of the time, but I also think these are really two of the most urgent matters, um, especially in my own context. You know, I'm here in the United States. I know we have listeners here from all over the globe, but I think there are things we can relate to, um, certainly in climate change. But when it comes to racism, when it comes to kind of racial injustice, sadly, far too many places around the globe have their own stories of whether it's colonization or like in the United States, uh, chattel slave trade um, and other forms of oppression that need to be addressed. Um, I, I, I know you're joining me. We're, we're talking you're in Canada these days, and I've been very impressed by a lot of the work that's being done um, across the provinces with a kind of truth and reconciliation, especially with Native peoples up there. Sadly, in the United States, we really are behind the times in that sort of effort. And so the, the genesis of this book is, you know, for the last maybe eight or nine years, I have written and I've given lectures and I've taught about racial justice, um, about white supremacy, about uh, anti-Black racism, and particularly from a, you know, a theological perspective, a, a Christian perspective, a matter of faith. And last year, as, as our listeners will, be, will, will recall, um, around the time that there were a number of high-profile uh, murders of, of unarmed African-Americans in the United States, in particular Mr. George Floyd and Ms. Breonna Taylor, among others, um, there was this strong desire to seek more resources, to engage in more conversations about why is this continuing? Why does this continue to happen? What are the structural and institutional factors that make these particular instances of, of police brutality possible in the first place? But more than that, all the ways in which some people are advantaged and some people are disadvantaged by the structures of racial injustice. And so my publisher reached out to me. Um, I should say, too, that, that Henry Nouwen, I think actually we were just talking about it, one of his last books was published by Ave Maria Press in Notre Dame. Uh, they're the ones who published this, this book of mine. My editor there reached out to me and asked if I would consider writing a book, given some of the work I had been doing already. And I'll be honest with you, Karen, I, I hesitated at first. I, I was really hesitant because the thought that I had was, on the one hand, you know, what does a white you know, Franciscan friar male have to say when there are so many other resources already available out there. Like what, what, what is that about? But then on the other hand, I was reminded and then encouraged, particularly by my sisters and brothers of color, especially those who are, are theologians and anti-racist activists, that white people need to do the homework first before we can really move forward. That too often, um, sometimes with well, with good intentions, but, but prematurely, predominantly white institutions, communities, and organizations will 
want to respond to something and then bring in, for instance, um, experts of color to try to facilitate something and it doesn't go well. This is a bit of a long-winded way of saying that the, the title is very significant, that I was very conscious and I agreed in the end to, to, to work on this project, to write this book, only if I could make clear that I wanted to speak to my fellow white women and men. And, and of course, this is not to be exclusive. Mm-hmm. I say very early on in the introduction that, that I hope, you know, what's in here resonates with my sisters and brothers of color as well. But, but there's work that people who look like me, who occupy social locations like mine, we need to talk about these things. And sadly, in mostly predominant uh, or predominantly white uh, contexts, whether it's families or institutions or churches, they don't generally have these conversations unless some tragedy occurs. So my interest in this book was, can I, can I create a resource? Can I cre- create uh, a means of conversation so that we can have some of this uh, discussion uh, you know, and, and advance the cause of racial justice? I love the fact that you come from the place of acknowledging white privilege uh, and how it contributes to racial justice. And I, th- I really think that's, that's important. It, it, it's exactly what you're saying, that you come from where you can come. But you're also wanting to say, how can we have a better kind of discussion? How can we do better in all of this? This summer for myself, you know, you mentioned about what's happening here in Canada with our truth and reconciliation. Well, in so many ways, we fail. There were, uh, what is it, 94 recommendations, and we have not accomplished very many of them. And, and we are sad. We're brokenhearted at what has happened. And then, of course, there came the news of of the bodies being discovered, and, and there will be more of that. But it's, it is very, very important at this point to enter into saying, okay, I need to become educated, period. And I need to change where I'm coming from. Yeah. And I need to understand how can I be a better part, in play a better part in this discussion and be a part of the solution. Uh, I know for myself, I bought a stack of books that I felt were a beginning for me. And I've just been reading and reading and reading. And I think it's important. I've got to change. I've got to know. Stuff has happened on my watch. And I didn't understand what was happening. And it's that's no good. That's not an answer. I so appreciate that you wrote this book. I was really touched by the fact that, and I was touched by A White Catholic's Guide to Racism and Privilege. So where are you heading with it? What's happening with this? Well, I'm, I'm happy to say that it, it really has elicited a lot of conversations. Um, some uncomfortable. Uh, it was interesting. I was in uh, upstate New York um, at, a, at a university last week uh, speaking with uh, a number of students and, and administrators and professors uh, precisely about this book. And one of the things I said from the outset is, you will be uncomfortable and that's okay. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable and that's okay. This is really, this is really hard work. But one of the key things, and, and I think you just you summarized it so well when talking about the need to kind of read and read and to think and to rethink. One of the themes that I point out often is, is we need to well, A, especially if, if, like me, you you are identified as white in the society, the whole structure of systemic racism and white privilege is such that we are prevented from seeing these realities, seeing the ways in which there are benefits for some and disadvantages for others. And so the only way you can overcome a kind of, you know, a system that is deliberately blinding you to these realities is to be reminded of that. We have to constantly remind ourselves and I think some people get uncomfortable with that sort of language. They think, oh, are you trying to, you know, instill some sort of guilt or to make people feel bad? And my response is, I'm not trying to make anybody feel anything. <laughs> I think the, the real key here, especially as people of faith, is 
we want to seek the truth, right? And the truth will set us free, basically, <laughs> as Jesus said. And, and the truth and, and the dynamics of, of racism and white supremacy means that the truth can be very hard for, for white people to see. So I think that learning and relearning and reminding and having conversations is really essential. And, and one of the ways I often think about this, too, is that at least my experience has been when you get to a point where you see the truth, even a glimpse of it, it's really hard to go back to the untruth. What I mean by that is look at the outpouring both around the United States, but also globally last summer with the, pro- the Black Lives Matter yes. protests in response to the murder of George Floyd. You know, what happened? People ask that question. What was the tipping point? And for me, I think it's when you when you cannot look away anymore, when you are confronted with a truth that you'd rather not see, then the work needs to begin. Right. The work takes takes off from there. And how do we support one another in that work? The conversations are part of it. The self-education is part of it. The activism is part of it. Um, but it's it's not a one-shot thing. It is an ongoing experience, as you know. Do you ever get uh, exhausted by the the causes and the need to protest? I mean, uh, I, I think about those young people right now that have gone over to Scotland to be part of this uh, COP26. Do you get discouraged, Dan? Or or where, where do you get your resources to stay fired up and aware and, uh, in a sense, in tune? Yeah, that's such a great question. I, well, let me also echo, I, I'm so in, inspired by uh, the young people today. I, I think of Generation Z in particular. These young folks are, they, I think they threaten some older generations. I could, you know, including some of my colleagues, but I, I, I find it very refreshing because they're they're sincere, they're committed, they're energized, and that that should help light a fire under our, under our seats, yeah. we might say. But, you know, th- Yes. I mean, the, the honest answer is yes, it is exhausting. It is frustrating. It is um, demoralizing at times. However, I'll tell you, in acknowledging that, I'll acknowledge where I kind of find, you know, maybe a source of resilience or a source of inspiration, which is when, I'm, when I take an honest look at myself and I think about the hatred that I hear or the dismissals that I experience or the re- you know, kind of the rejection of the reality, whether about global climate change or about the reality of systemic racism. I look in particular at my sisters and brothers of color or those who are of Asian descent in the United States or uh, indigenous women and men. And I think they don't have the luxury of just stepping back and, and saying, well, you know what? I'm tired of all this vitriol. I'm tired of all this resistance. They have to live with the injustice that our society continues to perpetrate. And if I don't do something about it, if I don't, even when it's uncomfortable, when it's unsettling, when it's threatening, if I can't bring myself, put myself there in solidarity as best I can, which will never be fully complete given the circumstances of our society and of our communities, nevertheless, if I don't try, then I'm, I'm just part of the problem. And so that's one thing I, I constantly find myself falling back to, that who am I to complain about <laughs> a bunch of angry trolls on the internet, for instance, or what have you, you know, protesters or whatnot. When, when case in point, you know, what launched all of that kind of global awareness last summer, when people are literally dying because of the yeah. system. So that, that to me is what keeps me grounded. At least I hope it does. 
Dan, I know our listeners are going to want to hear more, taste more, read more from you. You are a treasure. I'm so grateful that we've had this time to talk together. And I'm going to encourage them to go to your website and listen to your podcast, get your books. I mean, there's some really wonderful books, all 14 of them, and wonderful articles that are coming out in the National Catholic Reporter. Uh, but I have, a, I have a crazy last request, and I don't know whether... This will work okay. for you or not, but I loved, I read your peace prayer for the privileged. Sure. Is there any chance that you would consider reading that for us? Absolutely. I just, I thought it was so powerful, and I'd be really grateful if we could just um, hear that as a kind of closing note at this moment. Well, I'm, I'm deeply honored, and I've been very moved by um, the responses that, that I've, I've received in, in, you know, after its publication, and so... Yeah, this is titled Peace Prayer for the Privileged. And um, my inspiration for this prayer, is, as listeners will hear right away, is the uh, peace prayer that's that's uh, in the spirit of St. Francis of yeah. Assisi. Um, but I feel like this, um, well, thank you, first of all, for your kind words and for asking me to, to pray this with us. And I'm, I'm very honored to do that. Um, I think it kind of speaks for itself. Lord, make me an instrument of your holy discomfort. Where there is privilege, let me sow equity. Where there is violence, let me work for peace. Where there is division, let me seek unity. Where there is racism, let me pursue racial justice. Where there is environmental degradation, let me care for creation. Where there is political discord, let me seek the common good. And where there is economic inequality, let me seek justice. O God of justice, Grant that I may not so much seek comfort as to welcome hard truths, to be heard as to listen, to hold power as to empower, to seek control as to follow. For it is in humility that we learn. It is in seeking forgiveness that we are reconciled. And it is in dying to self that we are born to new life. Amen. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much, Dan. It's just been such a delight to talk with you. I've got to come back to you because I know you have your finger on the pulse. That's all there is to it. And uh, I just encourage everyone to follow up with this. This has been, uh, this is just a little taste of the good stuff that you're going to get if you if you pursue Father Daniel Horan. I, I promise you that. Dan, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, and same to you. Thank you. This has been delightful. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. What an honor for me to spend time with Father Daniel Horan, a wonderful thinker, teacher, and writer on the environmental crisis. And he's given us wisdom from the Pope and from himself and how we as Christ followers need to respond. And I so appreciated what he shared with us about his latest book, the book on on racism and uh, white privilege. And I just... I encourage you all. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd be so grateful if you take time to give us a review or a thumbs up or pass this on to your friends and companions on the faith journey. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>